but it's very depressing to feel like half the country, uh, both half of the countries are just watching two separate movies um, and can't, they, they can't talk about anything because what's real to one is fake to the other and vice versa. That was controversial black writer and thinker Coleman Cruz Hughes. Welcome to the Last Negroes at Harvard podcast. I'm Kent Garrett. There were 18 of us in the Harvard class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now pushing 80. We have survived Jim Crow, the civil rights struggle, the Vietnam War, the war on drugs, the war on terror, the war on poverty, the age of Obama, and now the age of Trump. We have a lot to say before we leave the planet. This episode, our guest is writer and podcaster Coleman Cruz Hughes. I'm joined by classmates Fred Easter, Jerry Secundi, John Woodford, and Black Radcliffe graduate Connie McDougall. So let's start with Freddie. Mr. Easter, how are you? I am well. Uh, I am, uh, for Coleman's benefit, a native of New York, although I do not go there anymore without a return ticket. I live in Minnesota, um, Fire Lake, Minnesota now. I worked at Carleton College for a number of years, but I was, I am born and raised in New York. And Mr. Woodford, John, how are you? Uh, hi, I'm here in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, I grew up in Benton Harbor, Michigan, which is across the state. I've been here since 1977. And I, I edited the University of Michigan, one of the alumni publications for a bunch of years. But before that, I worked in um, Chicago, where I worked for Johnson Publishing Company. And as the editor of Muhammad Speaks for four years, I worked in the New York Times National Desk for three years, Chicago Sun-Times and various other publications, but most of the time, been right here. And uh, Jerry, how are you? I'm doing fine. Um, I grew up in uh, Northeast uh, Washington, D.C., lived there almost all my life until I went to college, law school, Peace Corps, Department of Justice, and then moved to Los Angeles. And I live in Pasadena, California, right outside of L.A., and never want to leave at this point in time, despite the 100-degree heat. <laughs> and Connie McDougall, how are you? I'm calling from the city. I'm a New Yorker, born and bred. I really, it's hard for me to imagine living anywhere else. Um, and I'm a, I'm a retired lawyer. I've been retired for a long time, and I'm meant for retirement. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and our guest is uh, Coleman Cruz Hughes. And how are you? Let's start with your one of the pieces you did about the, uh, well, you thinking about Black Lives Matter. Yeah, so I wrote a long piece about Black Lives Matter in, uh, must have been June, where I talked about where I think it, it is right and where I think it goes wrong. Um, I thought it was right to open up a conversation about police brutality, uh, police accountability, the fact that uh, cops tend not to get punished uh, rarely get punished when uh, when they do horrible things. 
that we don't have a system for good police accountability, that we should be open to things like changing qualified immunity to make it easier to hold bad cops accountable, um, that cops tend to lie when they um, and protect their own when when there is when there are examples of wrongdoing. So I, I felt I agreed with Black Lives Matter on all of those things. But I disagreed on the central contention that there is a problem with uh, racist cops uniquely killing black unarmed suspects. And I go into my reasons for believing this in the piece. Um, you know, back in 2014, when Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson, like many other uh, people and black people in particular, I felt a, a very emotional connection to the issue. And I felt like Michael Brown and earlier Trayvon Martin, I felt like there but for the but for the grace of God go I or one of my friends. And uh, it seemed to me clear that it was not just an injustice, but it was a racial injustice. Uh, but over the years, what I've discovered is that there is a huge amount of coverage bias in the national media on these issues, which obscures the degree to which uh, these exact same kind of situations happen to white people every single year. And we just don't hear about it because it never escapes lo the local news where it happens. So in the piece, I, I gave something like 15 examples from a single year. I think from 2015 of uh, of white Americans unarmed getting shot and killed by the police in precisely the ex the same kind of circumstances as uh, Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, Alton Sterling, uh, and so on and so forth. You know, these are names that you you've probably never heard, like you know, Tony Timpa, Der Derek Cruz. Uh, and and so on and you know looking at these stories along with the data on the best data we have which is admittedly not very good on police shootings suggests to me that there the, the the primary problem is that the american police kill too many people period and are are very rarely held accountable but people have seen this through a racial lens and that's what I'm objecting to on the basis of, of the data. Um, so that, that was the basic thrust of the piece. Can I pose a question? Yes. Tamir Rice was a 12-year-old youngster mm -hmm. playing with a toy gun in the park. And he got shot seconds after the police arrived. Is that happening to white youngsters? Yes, yes. I, well, why I, uh, don't they sue? They're white. Why don't they make a big fuss? I'm I mean, sure they do. Seems, I, but they should. They, hit they the ought paper. to. I mean, that's paper worthy. So, so here's. I, I recommend. I really recommend that all of you go to Washington Post police shooting database if you haven't already. The Washington Post keeps a journalist database of every American shot and killed by the cops going back to 2015. So if you go back to 2015, you'll find that uh, there was a, a, a white boy who was six years old. 
uh, who was shot by the cops several times and killed, completely unarmed. It would seem to me the argument then is there's not sufficient reporting of even more uh, mm -hmm. uh, wrongdoing, but how does that mean, how does that uh, prove that there's not a racist component in the police department? For example, many police departments contain people who are members of white supremacists and other hate groups throughout many parts of the country. And even in some of the recent shootings, they've seen the uh, police um, hanging around and chatting amiably with the uh, armed militia types that have shown up in Wisconsin and um, Portland, Portland yeah. and, and Michigan and elsewhere. So the fact that they may be killing other people wrongly, I don't see how that disproves a situation in which there's obviously a serious racist problem in addition to the bad training and the inadequate uh, steps made to get rid of so-called bad apples. I also feel that your data cannot be fully complete. Absolutely cannot. I mean, they could leave out a lot of uh, killings or beatings of black people. And I mean, if you're saying that it's proportional, that it's the same percentage of, of, the, of the black population that's m mistreated as the percentage of the white population, I mean, that just seems unbelievable to me. Let me ask Connie's question in a slightly different way, since you have the data. Is there a disproportionate number of people of color being harassed and killed by cops compared to white people? So, um, yes and no. The question on harassment, yes. Uh, the data indicates that black people are more likely to be roughed up by the cops. And this, this goes to uh, your, your point, John. Nothing I'm saying disproves uh, the idea that there's racial bias in policing. Uh, it's really, uh, so, so the data finds, you know, Roland Fryer and, and some other similar studies have found that black, black and Hispanic suspects are more likely to get uh, roughed up any level of force up to lethal force. They're more likely to experience than a, a white suspect in the same situation. Um, and then but when it comes to shootings, fatal shootings, there's, there's not good evidence that there's, there's a racial bias there. So, so, you know, in a way, I do think when one of these incidents happen, part of, sorry, part of what people are reacting to is the wider pattern, you know, in New York, it's stop and frisk in other cities, it's other policies, the wider pattern of, going back generations of harassment and unequal treatment and corruption. Um, and it's, it's not just the shooting that people are reacting to. It's, it's, that can be the tip of the iceberg, but it's also important to understand that, uh, you know, what, what happened to George Floyd, for example, happened to a white man named Tony Timpa on video in 2017. And most people, are, you know, most people I talk to still don't know that, right? So that when they, when they see the George Floyd video, they assume that the most important thing about this video is the race of the cop and the race of the suspect, rather, rather than the, the wider practice of police misconduct that led for this kind of thing to happen to both George Floyd and Tony Timba. What about the fact that there are white men who are armed who don't get killed 
um, who don't get attacked. I mean, who the marshals back off and leave them with the building that they have usurped. Are you talking about the, the Kenosha case? No, no, I'm talking, this was in Montana, I think. A group took over a um, fish and wildlife building and held the marshals at bay with weapons. Well, they didn't hold them at bay. The marshals decided not to move in. If they'd have been Black Panthers, they'd have called an airstrike. Mm-hmm. And they have, but they've killed some uh, of these white militia people too. They, Waco, uh, Ruby Ridge, and yeah, Waco, Waco and yeah. elsewhere. Maybe so. right. uh, yeah, they don't seem to kill them as often. That's true. And uh, and of course, the Black Panthers used to go around bearing weapons without getting right. uh, gunned down when they started in Oakland. So there's a mixed bag. But you know, uh, you know that um, you can often read a case. I remember we were driving in L.A. and we heard that there was a woman out on the freeway standing in her car waving a gun and the traffic the traffic stopped on the freeway for two hours. This has happened more than once out there. And I know I said to my wife, that's the one thing that, that's Don't not a black woman. Right now. You know, that's not a black woman. I'll bet you a thousand dollars to one. And of course it wasn't. I mean if it had been a black woman I'm I'm pretty sure they probably would have uh, shot her when she was waving <laughs> they shoot. And the traffic would have moved. If he should, if she didn't have a gun, they would have planted one on her. <laughs> well, Coma, how do you how do you account for the media bias? Tell us the derivation of that. You know, I I think what it is is that, um, you know, Americans, particularly Americans that are more in the Democrat blue culture of the country, um even even people my age were raised on the videos of peaceful black protesters getting hosed down in the 60s and so on and there is it it feels different to see a white cop do something to a black suspect than to see a white any cop do that same thing to to a white suspect i think at a gut level it's more gut-wrenching for people uh, whether or not it should be at the end of the day, it, it tends to be more gut-wrenching to watch a black suspect suffer under police brutality. And so when a video surfaces like the George, the George Floyd video, people feel it more than they feel the Tony Timpa video and they share it more and the media feels the need to report it more um, and it elicits more outrage. And I can totally understand given American history why that's true. But at the end of the day, shouldn't we be aiming towards having being the kind of people that apply equal outrage to all victims of something? I think that's probably- Perhaps, but we need to be the people who provide less brutality to all people. Mm-hmm. Certainly. May I ask you how old you are? 24. I mean, what are, what are your views on systemic racism? Does it exist or how pervasive is it? Or what's your sense of that? Systemic racism, I find to be a bit, a bit of a confusing term. I've read, you know, all the books that I'm supposed to read for, you know, to have it explained fully. But, uh, you know, when the, ter- the term originally, as I understand, it was first called institutional racism. And it was, it came from Stokely Carmichael and, uh, 
uh, Charles Hamilton's book, Black Power, in 1967. And in that book, they describe it as what they're really talking about is nonviolent widespread racial bias, like a landlord, uh, you know, not, you know, not renting to a prospective black buyer or, you know, a real estate agent steering a black person towards a different home. There are other kinds that are institutional that are not really um, economic or power oriented, but small things like um, I was taken for a maid when I went into somebody to visit a friend in a fancy apartment building. I mean, without any reason for that. Um, and the woman who wrote Cast, Isabel Wilkerson, she had an appointment with somebody. She was a reporter for the Times. He looked at her and wouldn't believe she was a reporter for the Times. And they didn't have the interview. And she kept saying, I'm the reporter. And he said, no, no, I'm waiting for a reporter. I've and had that too. I mean, I, I don't know a black person who hasn't had an, uh, you know, a thing like that. Well, but here's the thing, like, well, that's, how does that actually affect my chances of success at life in, in a deep way? Oh, lies, because instances. it means that people who look at you think that you're a maid, even when you're applying for a job, they've got to overcome that in order to hire well, you. not necessarily. I mean, it's that person, that particular person thought that. That's and I don't know what people are, are expecting is that it, like, I don't expect the, the world ever to be free of, of assholes. No, no, but it's no. not assholes. It's everyone. I think that's the difference. It's everyone? When you have, yes, I think it's built into all of us, including us. Uh, I think it's... Why? Well, it reflects the history of our country in a way. And we have a, a, we have a blemished history of our country and it plays out in many forms. I mean, I would say as far as Elizabeth... Wilkinson is concerned, she probably had thousands of interviews, and I doubt that happened, uh, Isabel, I mean, uh, that, uh, you know, I don't think that's a typical thing. That's, that's what I'm saying. Typical. I mean, most people saw her, and she said she was a journalist, and instantly said, okay, yeah. We you should know, talk so, to her about that. <laughs> well, okay, well uh, you know, I, I'm a black journalist, too, you know, and that type of thing can happen, but it's, 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 it's rare, but it'll never go away completely. That, that's the thing. I, I don't know a society in Earth that, on Earth that doesn't have you know, similar dynamics. And I, I fear that people are setting a bar sort of un unreasonably high to expect the, 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 the world to ever be this place where every, you know, there's no prejudice and there's no things like this. Yeah. Well, I think it trivializes the gross racist injustice, such as making people stand in line for eight hours because you're trying to keep them from voting. If we then focus on these, uh, you know, little anecdotal dramas that can happen all over the place, they, you know, I, you know the, the ones that Isabel Wilkinson brings up there, it's, there's no real, there's no comparison in the scale or even the, or even the injustice of it. I mean, There's thing, no comparison, yeah, but it's, 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 an unfortunate it's of the same cloth. It's of the same cloth. I don't think it's of the same cloth. Yeah. It's part of it, I believe. Right. I don't see it as uh... I don't think it's just bad apples at all. I think I don't um, no, it bad apples. No, making no no uh, the trying to keep people from voting and putting barriers and uh, making people go through seven or eight, you know, that, that's a structural and political phenomenon that needs to be 
addressed. And I think if... Um, but based on a lot of these beliefs of inferiority, et cetera, I believe. I believe that the whole bag of, 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 of um, beliefs and, and, and mis taking of facts is part of it. I really do. I don't, I don't think they stand alone. I don't think they're unrelated. Well, Coleman, let me ask you this. What, what is your definition? I mean, one of the big terms nowadays is, is sort of anti-racism. What does that mean for you? Well, on a very simple level, it means to be against racism, of course, but on a deeper level, how it's used today is to mean a very particular flavor of being against racism that um, you know has a lot less to do with the civil rights ethos and a lot more to do with you know critical race theory and certain ideas that came out of the academy and intersectional feminism and um, it's the kind of anti-racism that's popular among my generation it's very very different than what I was raised on by my by my parents and grandparents. And it has a lot to do with, you know, meditating on your racial identity. And um, if, you're, if you're white, it has a lot to do with sort of this almost religious feeling guilt about whiteness. Um, it's very, it was very foreign to me when I first encountered it. And it's still, um, it, 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 to me, it seems like really not the right focus. It seems like a, a big meditation on your inner psychodrama with very little actual concrete effects for black people or Americans at large. So that's sort of how I think when, pe when people complain about anti-racism of, you know, Robin D'Angelo, who's been on the bestsellers list for, you know, right. so long now, and Ibram Kendi, that's sort of what they're referring to. Kent, I don't have any idea of what this is about. What's your definition? Well, no, I, I, I think I agree with uh, Coleman on this. I mean, I think the Angelo's uh, psycho sort of babble is, is, is really not uh, going to help black people in the, in the long run. So I, What's he babbling, though? I don't, I'm not getting a picture. Well, I can give us a, a little summary. Again, so... So Robin D'Angelo has a book called White Fragility that's been topping the bestsellers list for, I think, over almost a year. Mm -hmm. um, and it's sort of the book that everyone is recommending to read right now to understand American race relations. And what she says in this book is she, she, she's a, a, a white woman who does um, diversity trainings. And the book, is primarily, the, the book is primarily addressed to a white audience. It's a book by a white person for white people. Uh, which essentially tells them that by just by growing up in the society, you're already racist. Um, you have to assume that going in the door. It's not really your fault you're racist. You were just born into it. But here's what you can do. You can accept my version of how to become better, which, which and then she lists a bunch of, of ways to interact with black people, <laughs> Um, you know, if you're having a conversation with a black person about race, for example, she says you should not, you should never argue back or you should never defend yourself. You should never say you're not racist or you should never say, oh, I, I meant that a different way. Um, but you should also not withdraw and be silent. She has a whole, you know, bullet point list of things 
you're not you're not allowed to say and basically what it amounts to is is to completely um turn off your mind just because you're talking to a black person because presumably black people can't handle being yeah. disagreed with yeah right, right. right. so i used a, to say when i spoke about these things publicly that white people are either racist or they have a learning disability <laughs> They couldn't pick it up from the society. <laughs> right. I think the percentage of racism among black people is probably about the same as it is among white people. I would say so too. And I would say the same among brown, brown people brown and people, Hispanics. Yellow people. I would say some, some of the most vicious racism I've encountered in my life has been from like South, South Asian, but it's everywhere. But, but the, the wider point is just that I, I do bristle a little bit when racism gets talked about as somehow a uniquely white sin I, rather than a, 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 a horrible thing about humanity in general that we all have to be working to outgrow. That's one of the things about white fragility that rubbed me the wrong way. I couldn't agree with you more, Coleman. Now, what about the old issue of uh, uh, compensation? I mean, an affirmative action. I mean, should we be compensated for the hundreds of years of, uh, you know, slavery or, or, or whatever. It's interesting that affirmative action was, I was, I just read a, a very long and good history of affirmative action by Melvin Yurosky, very thorough historian in which I learned, you, I imagine you, you remember, which is that at the beginning, the policy was sometimes called compensatory justice. Um, which is interesting because nobody talks about affirmative action in terms of compensation anymore. It's talked about in terms of diversity, the value, the inherent value of diversity. Mm -hmm. At a point there was kind of a change. It used to be a policy for black people in particular to make some amends, some effort at repairing a hundred years of Jim Crow plus slavery. But now that's, I think over time people became uncomfortable with that rationale and just jumped to, well, diversity is inherently good for its own sake. Um, I think, you know, affirmative action does seem to me, if the idea is affirmative action is a way of compensating for Jim Crow and slavery, it seems strange to me for a couple of reasons. One, I think the, the highest impact you can have with any group of people is in the youngest years, you know, zero through five and you know, K through 12. Um, it seems like a, a, a policy that skips the first 18 years of a person's life and puts them in a school at age 18 is not a serious policy aimed at raising the skills and education and human capital of a population. That, 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 so I, I'm much more interested in, you know, universal pre-K programs, things like Head Start, um, if there were something that were targeted at the black community, it would make much more sense to start earlier and focus resources younger. Affirmative action is, um, you know, most black, most black 18 year olds right now are not gonna benefit from affirmative action because either they didn't graduate high school, they graduated high school but aren't going to college, or they're going to, um, you know, a state school or someplace that doesn't practice affirmative action because the acceptance rate is, is high enough that they don't need to. It's only a very small percentage. It's been estimated at, you know, 
between one and 5% per year that of, of black kids that are getting into a school that actively practices affirmative action. And that's a percentage that's already sort of at the upper crust, so to speak. So again, it, it, people I think see, feel like if affirmative action went away that, you know, it would be, the rug would be pulled, pulled out from under black America. And I, I, that doesn't seem true to me. Well, the rug was pulled out from under affirmative action with the Becky case, actually. Affirmative action, affirmative action when it began was very effective because it did address things even at the lower age levels. And especially when companion programs like Head Start and other things were invested in and they, and they, you know, the country, uh, a lot of people didn't want to continue to in, invest in those programs, but affirmative action got many people into uh, jobs and uh, schools and, and other places where they wouldn't have been and it sort of increased uh, a number of people with some kind of uh, decent income, but they didn't want the, it's an expensive program and it probably should have a lot of you know, economic or compensatory justice in it. But the, the Backey case, I mean, they really got rid of affirmative action, the Backey case. What it's do you the, mean? The diversity, well- That's they, where diversity came from, yeah. Then the diversity, oh. and, and then what they did is then say that only if the people consciously uh, uttered racist, discriminatory intent would they be subject to having to uh, uh, affirmative action or hiring? Otherwise, you couldn't have class action. Of course, they've done this not just with in relation to black people; they've done it in relation to uh, you know labor unions and consumers and everything. They've the um, the um, corporations did not want to have anything that was class or widely based. They try to minimize the number of people who could sue, and then they go on from that to try to minimize even the damages that could be won by people suing. So when they got expensive, the people with the money put the gabash on affirmative action. But I do agree with you that even now, things should center on kids from uh, you know birth through six or seven or eight years old. There should be tremendous investment in educational and nutritional and environmental enrichment programs for young people across the country. Um, well, how do you feel about the, Coleman, about the Ivy League these days? I mean, I guess we're all from the Ivy League since you're out of, you know, you're out of Columbia. I mean, mm -hmm. is it working there or has it worked or what's your generation feel about that? Affirmative action in particular? Yeah, in terms of the Ivy League. Well, um, we know that mostly you know, from, from uh, Lonnie Guineer and Henry Louis Gates' study in 2004, and also from Douglas Massey's work, that, you know, anywhere from a third to two thirds of black kids at Ivy League schools are either immigrants, children of immigrants, um, or otherwise not, you know, are not uh, descendants of two parents, not children of two parents who are descended from slavery. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's a, that's a huge disparity because, you know, 90% of black people in the country are, are descendants of slavery. Um, and so that, that definitely undermines the notion that affirmative action in the Ivy Leagues is paying back 
descendants of slavery um, rather than, you know, largely middle and often upper middle class children of immigrants. So there's that. It's kind of a thorny issue that's sometimes awkward to talk about. Um, there's also, you know, the problem. I, I don't think this is as much a problem at the top tier Ivies. I think uh, black kids brought in under affirmative action tend to do well in, in the top tier Ivies academically. But there have been uh, there's been some evidence from other schools, some some reason to cons to, to worry that there could be a mismatch problem if there is a big gap between the level of preparedness and academic level that the average black kid is coming into a class versus the average white kid. They find themselves, despite being very smart, uh, in the bottom 20% of the class. Um, and, and there's been evidence that sometimes black science majors in particular if they're mismatched with an institution and find themselves coming in at the bottom of every class, they switch out from the science major into uh, a humanities major. Whereas if they had been placed at a slightly lower, but still really good school that they would have stayed with the science major because they would have been in the middle of the class. So that's a, that's another concern about uh, racial preference programs that, that uh, weigh on the preferences too hard. Um, so that's my sense. Let me say, if I may, I, I, I spent a fair amount of time doing admissions work at Carleton College, which is a fairly strong uh, liberal arts college. Um, one of the things that I think is given too little weight is the fact that black people in the main live a different life than white people. And what we have done is, it seems to me, buy into the fact that the whiter your language is, the broader your vocabulary is, the easier college is going to be for you. Um, I can remember on my college boards, the word, um, you know, they give you a word and then they say, which word is most, is this most like? And the word was lugubrious. <laughs> well, uh, if I had said lugubrious instead of sad at my dinner table, someone <laughs> would have hit me um, hard. They would still look at you funny. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah, but and white so people don't say lugubrious either. Yeah. Nobody, <laughs> says Nobody says it. Nobody says it. Nobody says it. Uh, but it was, there it was, you know, uh, uh, a cumin is, I mean, there were a lot of words that we don't use because they sound, because they, they sound sort of like what people in the old days used to call putting on airs. Well, what about in your reading life? You read them. That's where you see them. Correct. Correct. Yeah. My feeling is if I teach you the word today and you don't know it tomorrow, you may not be college material, but you don't have to know it today to get along in college. Yeah. Mm. Well, that's the importance of studying. Well, you know, Coleman, I, I live up in uh, Delaware County, which is about, we're about three hours, two and a half hours from New York. And it's a real redneck country is the best mm. way to describe it. Uh, the town I'm in is Roxbury, which is not so redneck, but, but people are divided now in terms of uh, all the Trump 
people wear don't wear masks. All the other people wear. Oh my God! Masks. All the Trump people say all lives matter. Mm -hmm. All the other people say Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, tell me, what about that divergence, <laughs> discrepancy? It's really, uh, to me, it's it's the most depressing thing about the country right now is that it feels like we're just split. It feels like, um, I'm, so I'm a political independent, right? I voted for Hi Hillary. I'm, I'm planning to vote for Biden. But in four years with a different Republican, I could imagine myself voting that way too. That's, that's just my approach to politics. Um, but it's very depressing to feel like half the country, uh, both half of the countries are just watching two separate movies um, and can't, they, they can't talk about anything because what's real to one is fake to the other and vice versa. A nation watching two separate movies. So says Coleman Cruz Hughes. And that's it for this episode 13 of the Last Negroes at Harvard podcast. I'm Kent Garrett, and you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.